Good morning. My name's Jeff. Our second reading is from Exodus chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. You can find it uh, in the Pew Bibles on page 78 or on the screen. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows, not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. 
Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, come to the last part of our Exodus series. I do hope this series has been edifying, encouraging to you. You can see how relevant this story, some however many thousands of years ago, is still so relevant to us today, because it is the same God, and we are his people. Uh, let's pray, and we'll consider this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word and consider who you are, that all of us might sense your presence, your holiness, and know of your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin asking you, each Sunday, how do you prepare for Sundays? In fact, do you prepare for Sundays? Do you look forward to Sundays? What do you think? I wonder whether for some of us, Sundays is a bit like, you know, I get to sleep in a little bit, and then I wake up, it's 9.45, oh dear, we're going to be late. Kids, get ready. And then we come to church, and the car park's full ready, and we have to park down the street, and we're, we're rushing, getting our, you know, signing in, and hopefully we'll make it there before the end of the first hymn. I wonder whether that's how some of us are like each Sunday. I wonder whether some of us on Sundays, we're actually up early. We've done our devotion, we've gone for a nice walk, we've prepared our hearts, and we arrive at church early. I wonder whether some of us, church Sundays, it's a bit negotiable. It actually depends on whether I have anything else on. It depends. Depends on whether our kids have anything else on, and if nothing, then I'll come to church. It's negotiable. And we just go through the motions. It's interesting to reflect on, isn't it? How do you prepare for Sundays? What do your Sundays look like? Because, you see, when we do gather like this, every Sunday, as the people of God, what is, in fact, taking place? What is it that we are doing? Is it all that important at all? Is it just, you know, a bunch of people getting together to sing, to pray together? We listen to some guy preach and then we catch up on the week. Is that all? Is that what this is about? Because you see, what is in fact taking place is far more important, far more significant than perhaps we might even know. You see, it's not merely that. It is in fact extraordinary that we can even be a part of it at all, that we could gather each week in the very presence of God himself. You see, even if it may not feel like it, when we do gather as God's people, we are gathered around God with our hearts fixed on Jesus, filled by his spirit. I mean, just try to conceptualize that for a moment. We are here in the very presence of the God of the universe, the almighty God who rules heaven and earth, and we are gathered in his presence. I mean, to understand and to know and to believe that when we cry out to God, when we call out to God in prayer, that our prayers will ascend even to the ears of God, and he listens. 
It's extraordinary. Or when we sing with our voices and we sing the praises of God, that our voices, in fact, lifts up even to the throne room of Christ himself. That's extraordinary. That God will be so pleased when he sees us to welcome us, to have us, to draw us near, to even receive our worship as fickle as it might be, and to know that God is with us by his spirit. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Think about it. How do you prepare for Sundays? Is that what you're preparing for? It is extraordinary. You see, often we come to church on Sundays and our hearts are in fact disconnected from the reality of what is in fact taking place. But you see, this passage today will hopefully wake us all up to the extraordinary privilege we all have. Because what we see in this passage was in fact the first time the people of God gathered around him. It's been called the first gathering, the first congregation, the first assembly, in fact, the first church. That's what we're reading of. Chapter 19, the first church. And so where are we now? What has taken place? Well, they were about to gather and they were about to meet with God. They're about to meet with God, be in the presence of God. They've arrived at Mount Sinai, just like the kids talk. They've been walking, walking, walking. And now they've stopped at the foot of the mountain of God. And so you remember when Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might worship God. It was so that they can get to this mountain. Now they have arrived and they are about to come into the presence of God and to worship him. You see, what takes place even now will appreciate far more when we understand this passage. And so let's consider it. What was it like? What, what did they have to know as they come, as they prepare themselves to engage with God, to be in the presence of God, to meet with God? What did they have to be reminded of? You see, what they had to be reminded of is, in fact, what we have to be reminded of even today. The grounds of them coming to God, the grounds of them approaching God, the grounds of them coming into the very presence of God and having any relationship with God, is the grounds of God's grace. It's never, I'm good enough to approach God. I think I've done enough good things in my life so that I can come before God, that he would accept me. I mean, I came to church, surely God will be pleased. Not that at all. You see, the grounds for any relationship with God, even the fact that we can pray to God and know that he listens, is the grace of God. That is God's initiative, his favour of establishing this relationship we have with him. It is God's grace. And so the first thing the Israelites were told to remember as they came towards God, as they came and prepared themselves before God, they had to remember they are here, they've ended up here, freed from slavery, freed from being under the exploitation of Pharaoh to being loved by God. They're here because of God's kindness to them. And so have a look at verses 3 and 4. This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now notice the picture there that, that God describes. It's a beautiful picture of how they were saved. I carried you on eagles' wings. I mean, you didn't have to fight for yourself. You didn't have to flee and run for your lives, not at all. 
It's as though I carried you out. I saved you. I brought you here. And the picture here is of, of the eagle. It's just a fascinating picture. You know, the mighty eagle, the mighty bird of prey. The picture is a bit like a mother eagle with power and swiftness swooping down with her wings spread out to, to take care of her little chicks who are learning to fly and protecting them, carrying them on her wings. I carried you on eagle's wings. And do you notice where God carried them to? I brought you to myself. That's important. When they were safe, they were not safe. You're now free. You can do whatever you want. Do as you please. Go to the wilderness. Live how you like. Not at all. I save you to be with me. I saved you for me. Now, why was God reminding them of this? It was so that they would never, ever think, you have come to this point by the foot of Mount Sinai. It wasn't because you were good enough. It wasn't because you were obedient. That's why you were saved. I mean, it wasn't because you obeyed the laws. You haven't received the laws yet, in fact. You are safe because I carried you out. You are saved because I brought you to me. Now, they cannot get this wrong. There's an order of salvation here that we have to see and we have to learn and we have to know it for ourselves today. The order is you are saved first and then you learn to obey God. It can't be the other way around. It's not you obey first, you be good first, you, you do good first, and then I'll think about saving you. Not at all. It is salvation first and then obedience second. Can't get it the wrong way around. Like just the other week I had a chat with a young man, and he said to me, I'm not sure if I can be a Christian. He said, I'm just not too sure. But as long as you're good enough, if you're a good enough person, it should be all okay. That's what he said to me. And I don't think it's just him who thinks this way. I suspect some of us might still think that way. So what do you say to a man who says that? If I'm good enough, I should be okay with God. Well, I said, you got it the wrong way around. You got it the wrong way around. It's a bit like, let's just say, you're drowning in the pool. You're gasping for breath. And I'm on the side of the pool, and I'm showing you the rules of swimming. This is how you swim. You're drowning. You're, you're, you're gasping for breath. You're, 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 you're suffocating. And I'm telling you, this is how you do your strokes. Is that the right way? No, you, you jump in, you save the guy first, and then after he's safe and saved, now I teach you how to swim. You see, salvation comes first, and then obedience second. God was reminding them, you're here by grace. I carried you. You did nothing. I carried you on eagles' wings. In fact, if it depended on you being obedient, you'd be long dead in Egypt. You'd be stuck there. You, there would have been no way out. You see, God wanted them to learn this because if I am saved first, and God is the one who establishes my relationship with him, then my motivation to obey God, and this is important for Christians, for us who believe, it's important for us to remember my motivation to obey God. It's not so that I can get something from God. I obey you, God, some cosmic transaction. I do something good to you and for you. You do something good for me. In fact, if that were the case, we had to obey to get something good from God. What would, what would we end up doing? I think we would resent it. 
I think we'll resent God. You make me obey just so that I can... We'll resent it or we'll feel crushed by it because we cannot carry it, we cannot do it, we cannot be perfect and we'll give up. But instead, my motivation for obeying God is because I'm already safe. I'm already safe. I want to. I want to. God has saved me. Of course I want to live the life he saved me to live. And that's why God says now in verse 5, have a look. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, that is, live like you're free, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Now it's interesting, you see. God had to remind him, I carried you out on eagle's wings. Now obey. Now obey my covenant. Now this was not God suddenly making the salvation they received conditional. You know, keep my covenant and then I'll save you. No, they're already saved. But what God is saying is, you will enjoy the blessings of being in relationship with me if you obey me. You are safe already. You are mine already. But you enjoy it fully. You will delight in this relationship if you obey me. It's a bit like a marriage relationship. When is the marriage form? When is the covenant form? When the vows are exchanged, isn't it? That moment. And then the minister declares, you're married, husband and wife. From that moment on, they are no longer best friends, but they are husband and wife. They are in a covenant relationship. But how will husband and wife enjoy the blessings of marriage? How? Well, it is if the husband and wife keep their covenant. If I promise to love you, to cherish you, to support you, to give my all to you, to be faithful to you until, until I die. If I stick to that, I'll enjoy the blessings of marriage. But if after getting married I renege on that and I be a punk of a husband and I not keep my side of the bargain and I'm selfish and I'm, I'm unfaithful, I will not enjoy the blessing of that relationship, the blessing of that covenant. It'll be a broken marriage. And so that's why God says here, you are safe already, you're mine. You're free, you're no longer in Egypt. Now you want to enjoy this relationship? Then obey, obey me. And what will they enjoy? Well, we read here, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I mean, that was our memory text, wasn't it? From 1 Peter the other month. Now try to fathom what God is saying here. The word for possession here has the meaning of a king's prized treasure, his prized possession. You see, as king, God is saying, I own the whole universe. Everything in this universe is mine. I claim it all. It's mine. I made it all. But, but I want to keep you as a nation close to me. You are my treasured possession out of the whole world. Out of all the nations, I pick you. And you'll be a kingdom of priests. That is, God is saying, if you obey me, you will be my mediator in this world. You'll show the world, you'll communicate to the world how good I am, how powerful I am, how glorious I am. And you'll be a holy nation. That is, you'll be so different to the world around you. You'll be so distinct, so set apart, so good. I mean, you think about it. If you live God's way, you will be different. And it'll be good. It'll be really good. I mean, just think about your neighbourhood where you live. Would you prefer your neighbours 
to live according to the Ten Commandments? Or will you prefer to live next to neighbours who break all the Ten Commandments? Of course, the one who keeps it. To live God's way, it's holy, it's good. And so God says, you will be my holy nation. You'll be so different to the world around you. And of course, you need to remember still how you got here. You obey, not because that will save you. You're already safe. I carried you on eagle's wings. It is by grace. Now come to me, enjoy and obey. But then we move on in this story. Before they were able to get too close, they had to understand the terrifying and beautiful holiness of God. They had to understand who God was. And we need to understand this because it's not as though you can just come to God however you want, whenever you want. Look at what happened with this first church, this first assembly. Because if we think like that today, we've mucked it up. We have not appreciated the holiness of God. You see, God wanted them to understand the blazing, the terrifying, yet beautiful holiness of God. He's beautiful, so he'll draw people to him. But not too close, otherwise you'll die. Perhaps that's why God descends on in a thick cloud, so that it, it somewhat shields them from his brilliance, from his holiness. And so God speaks, he gives instructions, verses 10 and 11. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Which means God says to them, I brought you to me. But you have to remember, you can't come just because you want to. You can't come the way you are. You have to prepare yourself. You have to consecrate yourself. And it's going to take three days. Washing, cleansing. I mean, imagine preparing for church that way. Some of us, we wake up and whatever's there, we'll wear and we'll come. Imagine taking three days to prepare for church. Now, of course, there's a difference on this side of the cross, and we'll, we'll come to that in a moment, but just allow that to sink in. This was the first church gathering, and they had to take three days to prepare for it. But it makes sense, doesn't it? The, important, the more important the function, the more you need to prepare for it makes sense it happens in our life doesn't it if you have a meeting with me your your, your minister wear jeans doesn't matter come as you like your hair's messy i don't care but if you were invited to government house to see the governor i'm sure you won't be wearing jeans you'll be far more prepared but let's just say now you're going to a wedding as a wedding guest well you're going to be prepared for that now now you need to bring out the suit and dresses and and whatever we wear to weddings as guests but if you're the bride, how long will you need to be prepared to be the bride at your own wedding? I don't know how long brides take. I think it's a long time. Days, months? More than the groom anyway. But here we're talking about God. Prepare not just how good you look outwardly, but prepare yourself inside morally. And perhaps I wonder whether this is the case, I haven't done the research, whether historically Christians would come to church in their Sunday best. Remember that term? Come to church in your Sunday best? And I wonder whether this is where it comes from. But why all this preparation? You see, it's because they had to see how terrifyingly pure, perfect, beautiful, set apart, holy God is 
And I think we need to recapture this holiness of God because I suspect we're, often we're just so flippant before God, so casual before God, but God is holy. Any hint of filth, any hint of sin, and you come into the presence of God, you die. You're a goner. It's why when Isaiah the prophet, when he came into the presence of God, he broke down. He said, woe to me, I am ruined for I am a man with unclean lips. I mean, how do I survive in front of God? Even the angels in that same scene, the angels with the six wings, they had to cover their faces. They could not see the holiness of God as they cried out, holy, holy, holy Lord Almighty. Or even in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, when he, when he finally discovers that the man on the boat with him was the Lord, what did he do? He fell to his knees and he cried out, Away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You see, you come closer to God, you're drawn to God because he's beautiful. He's perfect. He draws us to him. But the closer you come to the light, what happens? The more filth, the more dirt you see. And you come too close, you just die. And that's why God says now in verse 12, Put limits for the people around the mountain. And then later on, verse 12, Whoever touches, even touches the mountain, shall surely be put to death. You see, they had to understand the terrifying, the dazzling, yet beautiful holiness of God. It's, it's like nuclear. Come too close and you'll die. Now, of course, on this side of the cross, which we'll come to, it is different. But just imagine, I mean, just imagine how you prepared for church this morning. Just imagine if coming to church every week, just imagine this. A few of us drop dead every week because of the holiness of God. Imagine that. Every week a few of us die. You know, brothers and sisters, I'm sorry to report, a few of us died, particularly those in the back pew, and next week we're sitting all at the front. <laughs> but we'll take our faith far more seriously if that were the case. We don't muck around the holy God. See, understanding the beautiful holiness of God, but now behold the awesome glory of God. The day has finally arrived. They're coming in the presence of God. And what's that scene? We've got a bit of the scene before with the smoke. and I mean, what's that scene? It's breathtaking. It's frightening. It's earth-shattering. It's awe-inspiring. It's awesome. It's glorious. You see a glimpse of the weightiness of God's glory. Glory means heaviness, weightiness, significance. We see a glimpse of that in this picture. And what did it look like? It looked like all the natural disasters coming together. Volcanic eruption, earthquake, thunder, lightning, smokes, clouds, fire, trembling, all happening together. I mean, just try to sense that, see that, feel that, and hear it. I mean, and some of us here are thinking, God is just like that soft, cuddly teddy bear. Oh man, how wrong is that? If our ideas about God is less than what is happening in Exodus 19, 
we have an unworthy view of the glory of God. You see, to be in the very presence of God was scary, terrifying, overwhelming. And that's why God had to shroud a bit of his glory with that thick cloud, conceal it a bit, otherwise they'll just die. And so look at verse 18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. You see, you look at that and you behold your God. There is no mucking around before God Almighty. Again, think about coming to church. You know, not simply wear your Sunday best. But if that was happening, you'll come wearing the hard hats in case of these volcanic rock falls upon you. You'll come wearing glasses or sunglasses or goggles because the brilliance of the light will be too bright to bear. You'll wear fireproof overalls because of fires coming everywhere. You'll wear a respirator because of all this smoke. I mean, it is dangerous, absolutely dangerous to be in the presence of God. Come too close and God will break out and some will die. Puritan John Arrowsmith, he said, his glory will be too dazzling for our weak eyes. You can't look at God directly. It's like looking into the sun. You can't look into the sun and not go blind. You can't come too close to the sun and not burn up. But yet, one person was allowed. You notice that? You read that? Moses, he was allowed. He was allowed to go up and then down and up and down. This was an old man by this point. He was about 80 years old. I mean, he's walking up and down, however high the mount, 2,000 feet. Look at verse 3. He goes up. Verse 7, he comes down. Verse 8, he goes up. Verse 14, goes down. Verse 20, goes up. And then verse 25, comes down again. Why? Why this Moses walking up and there is an 80-year-old man? Well, it was the only way, the only way for the people of God to be kept safe from God. They needed a mediator, a bridge between God and mankind. He represented the people to God and he also represented God to his people. It was the only way they could come into the presence of God. Not them directly to God. They come too close, they would die. Even the animals would die. They needed a mediator. The only way to behold the awesome glory of God. And that was the first church experience. It's amazing. The first church experience. What a day. I mean, if that was the first church experience, will you come back again next week? Well, the people, they were there around the mountain for about a year. But now let me ask you, does it bring a new meaning? Does this passage throw some light into even us coming to church when God's people are gathered around God? Does it throw some light, bring some, some new meaning to that? If coming into the presence of God looked a bit like the Exodus, if anything, if anything, it would at least... It would at least have to instill in our hearts how extraordinary it is that we can come into the presence of God. 
that we can come into the presence of the Almighty with terrifying holiness and awesome glory. I mean, how is it possible that we can come and we don't have a few people in the back pews dying? How is that possible? How is it possible? Even if you consider this week. So think about your week. Think about the things you did and said or things you should have did and said but didn't. Have a think about what you allow to fester in your own hearts. I mean, what was our attitude even this morning? Let me just have a think about this week. Are there things that I have done that I'm really ashamed of, even this week, that, that I do not want to be seen or be, be exposed in the light of day? Or are there things that I've, I've been carrying for, in fact, months and, and years, I know still weighs me down inside and, and I just can't do anything about it and I, I just feel dirty inside. I know what I've been up to. See, Jeremiah tells us the human heart is deceitful above all things. And is it lust inside? A big problem. Lust, big, big problem. I mean, Jesus says adultery doesn't begin when you just act on it, but it begins in the heart. And a big problem we know today amongst a huge percentage of even Christian men is pornography. It is wrong. It is horrible. It is terrible. But do we justify it as just adult entertainment? Or is it greed? And do we justify that in our daily pursuits, in our objectives in this life, in our aspirations? Is, will we cover up and say, no, it's just trying to make a living, be comfortable, so that I can be more generous? But is that just covering up greed? Or is it hatred? Hatred and bitterness that has been festering for so long that I can never bring myself to forgive that person because of what that person did to me. I mean, have we not understood the gospel of Jesus Christ? And we claim it's not my fault. I won't do anything unless that person starts first. You see, if we really know the depths of our darkness, if we really know what we're capable of, what we're capable of doing. I mean, you read the tabloids, the newspapers, and you look at these people in power, politicians, the rich and powerful, the famous, and you read of the scandals. Why is it that they are always entrenched in some scandal? Why them? Well, it's not because they're more evil than us. It's not because they love their family less than us, but because they have the opportunity to. And if we were given that same opportunity, would we not fail? You see, if we understand what our hearts are capable of and what we're really like deep down, even just this past week, how can we come into the presence of God? Ask yourself that. How can you come to God, the holy, pure God, with even a hint of sin? How? And not die. I mean, the mountain trembled. The earthquake rumbled the people were terrified gods are consuming fire and you wonder why we're not instantly burnt up the moment we step into the presence of god and there are some of us here just wandering into church with a casual laissez-faire attitude 
I mean, this is the holy God. If I'm so consciously aware of how far I have fallen and the weight of all my guilt and shame and sin, it will be crushing. And if I even dare to walk up to God, what do I need? If that is what my heart is like, what do I need? What I need is I'm looking for cover. I'm looking for some shielding, for some protection. I'm looking for some cover from the holiness of God. And where do I find that cover? Well, some of us might think, I'm going to find that cover from what I do, my good efforts, my good deeds, my, my charity, my church attendance. That will cover me. Not at all. Not one bit. I mean, if any one of us thinks we're good enough to come into the presence of the holy God and think that will be our cover, you're kidding yourself. Or maybe I'll find cover in my parents. You know, and, and this will apply particularly to the younger ones here, the youth, the teenagers. My parents are good Christians, and so, and so I'll find cover in them, in their faith, in their good deeds. But where do you find your, your parents are over there? They need their own cover. They can't cover for you. Or maybe I'll find cover in my minister, in me. I mean, one of my friends I remember years ago, not, not, not a Christian friend, he, he said to me, if God is true, I'm going to say to God, I'm with you, John. Surely you'll cover for me. But then you look at your minister, where am I? I'm over here and I need my own cover. I need my own cover, frightened for my own life, crushed by my own guilt. You see, we need someone to cover for us if we are to come into the presence of God, to shield us from the thunder, from the lightning, to protect us from the earthquake, from the terrifying holiness of God. And where do we find that? Well, there is someone. Not on Mount Sinai, but on a little hill outside the walls of Jerusalem. You see, when Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross, what did he do? The thunder, the lightning, the earthquake, the darkness, it all fell upon him. And God's holiness, all that God's holiness demanded, was met in him. And so you look to Jesus and we find that cover we need because the thunder stops. The lightning stops, the earthquake stills, the darkness lifted, and the curtain torn. John Newton, a minister, the former slave trader, he put this in a, in a wonderful triumphant hymn. He has hushed the Lord's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us in his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Because who is he? He's the greater mediator. Moses was allowed to go up and down a mountain to meet with God, to be God's representative and to be the people's representative. But what do we have in the Son of God? One who came from heaven to earth. Why did God become man? Why did God descend not just down to a mountain but from heaven to earth? So that he could 
be that cover so that he could absorb it all, pay for it all. A theologian, Mark Jones, he said, he came to bleed to death for sinners that he might satisfy the justice of his divine holiness. He might bleed to death for sinners that he might satisfy the justice of his divine holiness. And the clouds were lifted and the curtain was torn. And then what do we hear? Not a consuming fire, but God's welcome. Come to me. Come to me. In fact, it's as though God has carried us on eagle's wings and we're, we're brought to God. And that's why today, and I'm, I'm very glad to say this, that's why today we won't find anyone consumed by the fire of God. We won't find people dying because of the holiness of God as we meet. Because the fire of God has already fallen on our Saviour. And so as we gather now, we do gather longing for the greater gathering in heaven one day when we will be gathered more fully with all the saints. But even as we gather today, it is as though because of Christ, because of his spirit in us, it is as though as we meet each Sunday, hopefully this will help change your attitude to Sundays, as we meet each Sunday, it is as though we step into heaven itself. A little glimpse. There's a spiritual reality of what we do. I mean, that was our first reading, wasn't it? We have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, and you have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. That is, in fact, what we do each week. We come to God, we come to Jesus, our mediator. And so let me ask you now, how will you come to church next week? I mean, we don't have to wear a heart hat, fireproof overalls. But do we come a bit dull, mundane? It's negotiable. Or do we come with our hearts engaged, wholehearted, in awe and wonder, because we do gather in the very presence of God. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the one who carried us on eagle's wings and brought us to yourself. And though we get a glimpse of your holiness, your glory, we can never fathom how we could ever find ourselves in your presence, but we do thank you for Jesus, our mediator, who paid it all, who covers us with his blood. We pray these things in Jesus' name.